I talk about woman to woman domestic violence and they would say, I don't, I don't know any lesbians, so I don't think it's going to be an issue for me. And I could say, well, yeah, you do, you know me. And people, they had to take a step back because they sort of like, they already knew me and they liked me and they didn't know any lesbians and they thought they probably wouldn't like them because, you know, whatever. And they had to put that together. And just that one tiny thing is political and us being visible and saying this happens and we can do something about it. And it doesn't come out of the blue. It's part of a system of oppressions. Listening to the Woman Inc. podcast. Woman Inc. is a San Francisco based nonprofit that has been serving the city and larger Bay Area since 1978. We support survivors of domestic violence and their loved ones along their healing journeys, bridging value rich networks designed to address intersections of violence. Okay, my name is Shayna, and I'm here with Jeannie Morrow who has had many roles with Women Inc., including executive director and director of the Women to Women Domestic Violence Program, also director of crisis services. I was wondering if you can generally tell us a little bit about yourself, anything you'd like to share, really. Thank you for having me here, too. I am a licensed therapist. I'm from Philadelphia, but I've been in the Bay Area for more than 30 years now. I worked with Women Inc. for 14 years, which I think we'll talk about more later. Um, I work with another organization now, but I also do volunteer work with the Kaiser Bereavement Program. I work with um, hospice and bereavement calls and also Red Cross. I do some disaster mental health relief, although it's been all from the home for the last year. <laughs> I'm lucky because I am I was working from home with my regular job, which is for an insurance company at this point, as a, still as a therapist. I work almost full-time for that. And with it, not having a commute, it really it frees up some time for me to do some actual direct service that I like. Nice. <clears throat> all right. Well, if we could start from the top, when did you begin working with Women Inc? And how long were you here for? Well, from the top, I, I moved here from Philadelphia in 1984, and probably about the first thing I did was look for a place to volunteer where I felt like I could connect with other women and have a community and maybe maybe make a difference too. And I, um, I immediately liked and volunteered for Woman Inc. And so I was a volunteer, and then by the end of the year of 1984, I was employed as the volunteer coordinator so it was a lot, it was 14 years as the volunteer coordinator, which became the director of crisis services at Women Inc. too. I was the coordinator of the intern program for a while. And actually, as you said, I was for the last two years of my tenure, I was the executive director. And as we'll talk about more, but probably my favorite, the best job that I feel really proud of that I did was the um, director of the Woman to Woman Domestic Violence Program. Could you share a little bit about the Woman to Woman DD program and how it got started? It was in its sort of infancy when I when I started. Liz Nadoff was the woman who was can be credited with getting it off the ground, and then the rest of many others of us were involved in its um, inception. So in in the eighties, then it was one of only two programs in the entire nation that were addressing uh, lesbian domestic violence or woman to woman domestic violence at that time. It was very hard to deal with. It was exciting times, but it was quite a controversial topic for you know a number of reasons. One being that none of us wanted to really know that women will hurt us too, and that there are a lot of myths about 
lesbian domestic violence that women can't hurt each other, they're the same size, you know, they won't hit each other, which are all, of course, untrue because domestic violence is a pattern of violence and control over another person. And we were also kind of up against, you know, even us as lesbians not wanting to air our dirty laundry, I'm making little quote signs, um, in the larger community, and even in the heterosexual feminist community, because you know uh, some of the organizations were just then accepting that lesbians were part of their feminist community programs, like National Organization for Women, et cetera. So it was it, just having a program and naming lesbian domestic violence as, as an issue was kind of a controversial and exciting step to take. Um, I should also say that you know the reason this started was we were we were working with women. And lesbian women or women who in relationships with other women would come in and say they were battered. And we realized that there was a really a need because in that time, if you came for support, it meant you were also coming out. And that wasn't what everyone wanted at that time. And so we needed the really space. Yeah, thanks for sharing about that. Earlier, you said we didn't want to acknowledge that women could hurt us too. Could you say more about that? Yeah, it's hard to acknowledge that domestic violence is not just based on gender oppression. It wasn't just male against female. There was something else going on that was harder for us to acknowledge um, and oppressions within our own community. And like I said, it, it underlined the fact that it was it's not about how big you are uh, or anything. It's about a pattern of violence and control that can happen across any type of relationship. Yeah. I mean, you said a little bit about people that you worked with on this program. Were there other organizations or people out in the community that you collaborated with to, to bring this, maybe not just program together, but like um, to bring like life into this particular part mm -hmm. of the movement? I mean, I think we collaborated with like the, you know, the usual agencies that we did collaborate, but especially KUAF, Community United Against Violence. Um, we worked with them a lot. We also worked I want to say Rosalie House, which is now Riley Center, and um, with La Casa and um, the Asian Women's Shelter. And, but in 1987, I think um, I had mentioned before that Woman Inc. sponsored the first conference on lesbian domestic violence, the first one in you know, the nation. Um, it was called Say the Words, Lesbian Domestic Violence. Coming out as a lesbian who's a victim of domestic violence was very powerful. And once this conference has happened, my coworkers and I started getting, you know, invited to speak actually nationally and internationally. That was really important. A lot of my job was really sort of basic education. And, and it seemed as if it were the time that the country was ready to hear about this too. And, and one of the things I would say is if in domestic violence for a woman who's being battered by a woman, everything is exactly the same and everything is totally different in that it's the, the cycle of violence is the same. The pattern of power and control, what can happen to you, how you can be hurt is the same. And the reasons for staying in a relationship are the same. But what's totally different is the asking for help meant coming out. And it meant at that time facing institutionalized homophobia and heterosexism and just being afraid, you're afraid getting help would get you into worse of a mess if you needed to come out. So yeah, so it was a very controversial time. Yeah. <laughs> so the last time we spoke, you described this as a politically powerful move. And it stuck, stuck out to me because I think 
I think the way social services is framed, I mean, today even, um, is that like politics is, is framed separately from direct service work. They're like siloed between social service and social change when I think that, you know, our lives are political. So that really stood out to me and I was wondering if you could say more about that in particular. Well, yeah, and I'm glad that stood out to you too, because that's one of the things that stood out to me with when I, you know, reconnected with the people at Woman Inc., that your the organization still is politically connecting, you know, oppressions and services and social service. So that's, thank you. Um, that made me really happy. So lesbians were essentially invisible so that lesbian domestic violence was double invisible. I mean, one of the things I was going to say later on is that it was political every move I made in my job, even as a volunteer coordinator. I talk to friends, but women that I didn't know that would know me for a couple of weeks. I talk about woman to woman domestic violence and they would say, I don't I don't know any lesbians, so I don't think it's going to be an issue for me. And this is this is the Bay Area in the 80s. It's not, you know, somewhere else. And I could say, well, yeah, you do. You know me. And people they had to take a step back because they sort of like they already knew me and they liked me and they didn't know any lesbians and they thought they probably wouldn't like them because, you know, whatever. And they had to put that together. And just that one tiny thing is political and us being visible and saying this happens and we can do something about it. And it doesn't come out of the blue. It's part of a system of oppressions. Yeah. Yeah, thanks so much for expanding on that. So also the last time we spoke, or spoke, it was written, but we'll say last time we spoke. <laughs> well, we did speak. Too. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Both happened. Uh-huh. You shared about um, how not only this program was getting started, but the Latina program, which is now the Latinx program, was in its beginnings. And so was MLAM, the Multilingual Access Model, which is still something that we use today. I was wondering if you could share a little bit about that. That makes me so happy um, <laughs> that it's, everything's still in the, there today. Well, the Latina program, I, I, I thought about that too. I, I think and this is not the best thing. A lot of the beginnings of the Latina program came from us realizing we didn't have enough language case capability for women who wanted to speak Spanish. Um, I spoke Spanish, but I'm not Latina. And we didn't just have enough people to address the needs of the women who were coming in to ask for help. Um, and within that, we sort of we educated ourselves and that we know that it's not just about language, it's about culture and, and, and racism and what difference needs a Latina woman might need within the agency. So that's, that's where that came from. And, and I'm still glad that it's, it's thriving as a, a program. And I, I was thinking, I was taking a walk today just as a tiny example. And I run this into this in my job today. Asking someone to call the police is very different for a black woman or a woman of color or a Latina than it is for a white woman. But, you know, it wasn't different in the 80s, but if anything, it was more frightening to do. So those are the types of things that, you know, we weren't totally aware of. We didn't think about until we started thinking about it. So I'm really glad that that did happen. Oh, and the MLM program, multilingual access model. If we collaborated, well, Asian Women's Shelter were the people who got that off the ground and got that started. Um, I did a lot of work, Becky Misaki, Christy Chung, and also Women Against Rape. I think we were the three agencies starting on that. There may have been other people involved, so I apologize if I'm missing anyone. But 
I just remember having a lot of meetings with with those people and, and figuring out how we're we going to have all these languages available. But we did. We recruited a lot of women who spoke different Asian and any other language. And glad to see it's still working now. As I was thinking about it, there was a sort of an added benefit when we were training our, you know, regular women ink volunteers on how to use the MLAM line. What and and it was that you can even if a woman is monolingual in a language that is not yours and you're monolingual too, you can still communicate. Even if it's on the phone, you can get something across. Don't just give up. And that actually went really far. Um, if you're in person, there's a lot of ways you can communicate. On the phone, it's harder, but you can still get across what language do you need by even saying a language until you get the right one. And it, I think it was it caused a lot more women to get services, whereas I think the call would have, you know, they probably would have hung up before the MLAM program and the training that went with it. I guess for folks who are unfamiliar with MLAM, would you be open to sharing what makes uh, MLAM different from just getting an interpreter? Yes. Um, I mean, I think the main difference is that the, the MLAM volunteers themselves have had training in domestic violence and how to mm-hmm. work with calls and how to get women to a safe space and then enable to, you know, access appropriate and safe services for them too. So they're automatically getting someone who's going to understand the situation and likely understand the culture too, because they're speaking the same language. Right. Oh, so cool to hear about Kuav and about AWS because uh, there's still such big uh, collaborators with women Inc. Like there's such a tight relationship there. That's good to hear too. I'm really glad. I I, it, I had a wonderful time with those people too. It was it was a good time and a difficult time at times, but it was um, it was apparently productive and it still exists. Yeah. Um, so cool to hear. And I love seeing the photos that you sent of like newspaper clippings. That really yeah, it was cool for me to look through them again, too. I bet. For folks who are listening, um, there is a blog post, which I will link in the description with another interview that we did um, two years ago, 2018. And you can find those photos there. Also, it's cool that you mentioned um, SF Women Against Rape because I am. Um, I volunteered and did medical advocacy and sexual assault work there for a little bit. Oh, that's great. Um, also, so. Yeah, they're a good agency too. Uh-huh. It all connects. <laughs> yeah. So my next question is pretty open. Are there any memories that you particularly cherish that you carry with you still from being a part of Women Inc.? Dang. Well, yes. Um, and, you know, just brought them all up again, too. Of like, you know, working with Becky and Christy and um, all those collaborations that we did. But just, you know, it, it, you know, it's the the rose colored glasses of years gone by now, but it seems like it was a wonderful, <laughs> innocent time in some ways. We'd we'd fundraise, we'd have dances. There'd be, um, it, you know, known DJs like Avacha or um, Paige Hodel, and we'd have a dance and we'd make five or $600 and we thought it was great. <laughs> um, and, and then there were the times that were harder, but were still fun. We'd spend the whole weekend writing a grant, um, just you know, going to each other's houses, working together, and then working on learning more about racism and 
um, anti-racism and how oppressions did connect and things that we might ha not have been as conscious of but when it was started in 1978 as a feminist collective. When I came on, on in 1984, it was, they were just transitioning from a feminist collective to a um, democratic organization with an executive director. So um, it went through a lot of changes and one of them was addressing, you know, internalized issues. Do you have any reflections on how it's kind of connected to what we were just talking about on how Women Inc. and or the domestic violence field in general has shifted over the years? Um, yeah, um, and that is just connected to what we were just talking about, um, too, about possible changing times, which is a good sign. Because, you know, when we first when I first met you all, I have to admit, I was sort of disappointed that there was no more woman to woman domestic violence program because, you know, I was there when that started. <laughs> that was sort of our baby. and. It was needed then, like we were talking about visibility and about it being a political act to be visible. And I think Woman Inc. at that time, you know, for a lot of good reasons, was coming mainly from a gender oppression type point of view um, and looking at the patriarchy and heterosexism and homophobia and how those institutions perpetuated domestic violence. And I think it seems like Woman Inc. is looking in a more um, like intersectionality that more clearly articulating that all oppressions connect. It's not just gender oppression, but there's gender and culture and race and class, and it all does connect. And so what I'm hoping is that it's not as necessary to have a visible lesbian program in that way, because lesbians are more visible. Like the story I told before about me coming out would be a big deal and they'd have to like, you know, cognitive dissonance, their heads would have to either explode or they'd have to accept that they already knew a lesbian that they liked. I think now everyone knows someone who's gay or bi or trans. And we've, I mean, we didn't have Ellen then. We didn't have anything. Um, <laughs> I, back, back in those days, um, I really didn't think in my lifetime that we would see legalized same-sex marriage. I really didn't think so. And so that's great. Now there's women in women relationships on Safeway commercials and mortgage applications. And, <laughs> um, and I didn't think I'd see that. And that really has changed. I'm hope it's a good sign that things have changed. And as you said, Women Inc. is still on the political edge and connecting politics with service at this time. Yeah. So I have two more questions. How do you feel your involvement with Women Inc. has impacted your life? Could be personally, professionally? or both? Um, in many, I mean, I, I read that question and I thought, you know, in so many ways and just thinking about it, like, I mean, like I said, I came here in 1984, uh, just out of Philadelphia. Um, <laughs> and I sort of grew, grew up at Woman Inc. because I was there, you know, for 14 years from since 24. So it helped me shape my way of thinking in terms of understanding all oppressions and how we can work within institutions and outside of institutions in order to better life for everyone. I mean, it really did shape the way I think, and I'm still friends with some people that I worked with. Um, and you know, I was gonna say who I hang out with too. <laughs> it's been a pretty strong influence on my life. And it, I was involved sort of day and night, and I sort of felt like, you know, we were Woman Inc. And I'm not sure I want that in another job right now, but it was important and I'm so glad that I was. And I still feel like, woman Inc. is me too, so I'm glad that I'm back in touch with you. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. 
Well, that's all of the structured questions mm -hmm. I had. I just always like to open it up and ask if there's any, anything else that you'd like to add, something that's coming up for you that I didn't ask about, or a question you want to go back to and add on to. Um, I think I said most of what I wanted to. I'm just, I'm very glad to be back in touch with Woman Inc. And very glad that you're, you know, maintaining the political edge that Woman Inc. has always had. Um, and it's interesting going back to the um, more collective-like structure too. In terms of interconnection, a Facebook friend IM'd me about something and I told her like, hey, I'm doing a podcast for Woman Inc. And she's like, oh, that's great. I'm so glad they're there. And um, so women of all ages all over are still talking about Woman Inc., which is great. That is super cool to hear. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's all I have. So thank you so much for your time. It's so nice speaking to you. And I'm so excited to edit this. Um, and I'll keep you posted on. You yeah, know. thank you so much for having for next year.